Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. I'm going to be joined by Abby in a little bit here. We have a returning guest on Media Roots Radio today. A guest who has not been on the podcast since 2014, July 20th, 2014. So it has been six years, actually almost seven years, since Colin has been on Media Roots Radio. But we had Colin on Media Roots Radio before to discuss his really good and important documentary film, Terms and Conditions May Apply. Media Roots Radio did an episode about seven years ago as well called Occupy Silicon Valley. And the purpose of the episode was to chronicle and go through every single horrible thing, privacy violating thing, creepy thing that Silicon Valley companies like Google, Apple, and Facebook were doing back in 2014. Now practically everybody talks about how these Silicon Valley companies are sketchy. So I had kind of an affinity for Colin, even though I haven't spoken to him for many years. We only spoke when we did this interview on Media Roots Radio. But I had always remembered and had an affinity for him and his views because he was just so ahead of the curve on this documentary, Terms and Conditions May Apply. Fast forward almost seven years later, I heard of the documentary miniseries Q Into the Storm. It was six parts long. It had come out already following a barrage of media coverage, a Vice documentary on Q that a lot of people didn't care for, a CNN documentary about Q. So when I saw the preview for this, I was kind of like, well, what more could this say? Like, what, you know, isn't it like a little over by now? And I randomly, I think I looked it up on Wikipedia or IMDb or something, and I saw that Colin Hobeck was the director. So that got me excited about it. I was thinking, oh shit, the guy who made Terms and Conditions May Apply is making a, or has made a six-part QAnon miniseries. Well, now I have to see this. So if you haven't seen the documentary Q Into the Storm on HBO, try to get a hold of a copy of it. Abby and I got a chance, again, to interview Colin together about a month after this HBO documentary miniseries came out. And researcher Gumby for Christ helped Abby and I with some of the questions. Colin Hobeck is the creator of documentary films Monster Camp from 2007 about LARPing, Terms and Conditions May Apply in 2013, about the dangers of Silicon Valley infringing on your privacy, and What Lies Upstream, which is about a massive chemical spill that left 300,000 people without drinking water for months in West Virginia that exposes corruption and collusion between chemical corporations and the highest levels of government. I hope you enjoy this interview with Colin Holbeck. It's about an hour and 45 minutes long. I recommend again that you watch Q Into the Storm, all six parts of it, before listening to this. We don't spoil a whole lot uh, except for the identity of the person that Colin believes was posting as QAnon in the end. Just wanted to start by just telling you how fucking amazing the documentary was. Just seeing your trajectory since... Abby and I had heard of you back since terms and conditions may apply to now. It's like incredible. I'm extremely happy for you getting all this recognition and attention for this documentary. It's it's really cool to see that happen. 
And amazing journalism as well. I mean, truly, right. truly amazing investigative journalism, rarely seen in any documentary. So just want to say that at the, at the front. Wow. Well, <laughs> thank you. I, 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 this project, I mean, it was done, uh, it was, it was, it was just, it was like a bunch of tiny miracles that got it to this point. And a year ago, less than a year ago, there was no certainty that there would be an outlet for it. Um, I had no idea that I'd be able to get uh, that I'd be able to get it onto HBO, and I, I knew that it needed to be six parts. And yet, I'd never, and I don't know that anyone's ever produced a six-part documentary series completely independently. Uh, so I, and I don't know how. I don't think it's really possible to make that a six-hour film like this um, through to completion uh, completely on your own, or at least with the resources that mm-hmm. I had. Uh, so it was in summer of 2020 that I knew I needed I needed some help. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, I've been doing my best (laughs) to improve at, at the, the investigative side of things, you know, terms and conditions may apply, had a fair amount of on, on the ground, uh, investigative work, but it was, it was largely done, um, through collecting, uh, through collecting information online. Sure. Uh, and then what lives upstream was very much boots on the ground, uh, investigative, journalism trying to get to the root of kind of systemic corruption i guess um and then i i guess i took the lessons from all of the previous documentaries i've worked on and applied them to this including monster camp um which mm-hmm. which was about live action role playing <laughs> so it's kind of amazing how many of those things touched on and i i think you you kind of already mentioned this in the q and on anonymous podcast how that sort of coalesced all sort of together into this subject of q Silicon Valley, the LARPing. I mean, at what point did you personally, just aside from knowing you wanted to make a documentary about this, at what point did you just on a personal level get interested in QAnon? And it seems like at a certain point you did become obsessed. So when did your interest start to the point of when you were like, this is fucking crazy? Like, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with this. Like, when did that, <laughs> when that happened for you? Well, I have an, I mean, I have an obsessive personality. Yeah. So <laughs> if I'm... I think it's what enables me to make these things because you have to be kind of crazy to <laughs> to in, invest everything in in uh, in documentary and in these three year long projects where you put all of your own money and resources and everything you've got into them. Uh, and of course, uh, I became obsessed with with this mystery and trying to crack it. Um, and and having thousands of archival assets in my head. I mean, I have a infinity board with all of the research on it that I think has <laughs> more than nine thousand assets <laughs> included in it. Um, <laughs> because in the beginning, it was hard. I think, like so many people who are trying to figure out Q, you're like, where do you even begin? I mean, there were lots of the- there were dominant theories, of course, um, and that's where we started was with the dominant theories. Uh, and trying to trace where certain people were at certain times, uh, whether they were people from Trump's inner circle, um, sort of ideologies, build a, a psychological profile for who might be behind it. Uh, and I gravitated pretty quickly towards the first 500 drops because that's where I felt like the most action had taken place behind the scenes. I felt there was, that was where Q made the most mistakes or whoever, or if Q changed hands, if there were power struggles behind the scenes. Um, there, 
Q was still figuring itself out at that point. So um, I think I reread the first 500 drops dozens of times. I mean, I have a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> I have drops by memory, you know, it's, it's, uh, so yes, of course, I'm, I'm, I was very, it requires a high degree of obsession to, to unpack something like this. And that's why I ended up going, focusing on 8chan, not because I thought necessarily that they were behind it. Of course, CodeMonkey had been mentioned in the drops, but because they had the technical data. So mm-hmm. rather than, rather than anecdotally put together uh, a profile for who might be behind it based on where people were in time and place, I, I was like, if I can, why not get in touch with those who have the data? Because uh, those are just facts, right? Uh, they know, if anyone knows, they do. Yeah, I mean, and it seems based on the timeline, and I'm not 100% clear on the timeline, but it seems like you were ahead of the curve in terms of like the idea that Ron and Jim Watkins were maybe involved in Q like wasn't reported in the news until maybe like um less than a year ago. And I've and based on what I've seen in the documentary, it seems like you were really ahead of the curve and kind of looking at that angle way before any journalists were even writing about this. I mean, I, I hadn't seen anything before that. Um, and it makes sense why you would gravitate there because whoever Q was had married itself to 4chan and then to 8chan, which is because a strange thing to do in and of itself to marry who you know this identity to a single message board. Yeah, I mean, Q doesn't marry. So there's two moments, I would say, where Q really marries itself to 8chan. The first is around January 5th of 2018 when Q says no outside comms. This is also when Q says that CodeMonkey is asking for CodeMonkey's help, uh, say protected by CodeMonkey. And so you can imagine that this is the moment that there's this big power struggle behind the scenes. Um, Why else would Q be so concerned all of a sudden about the idea that there would there would be other people claiming to be Q behind the scenes, or that Q might run to a different platform like 4chan at that point with the trip code. Uh, so I consider that to be the first big moment that Q really plants its flag or hitches its star to to 8chan. And then the second is in August of 2018. Um, Q gets hacked, uh, and it's at this moment. Uh, and I'm sure you've looked at it, but Q gets hacked. There's a paste bin dump called an appeal to Patriots. I mentioned this in uh, part the end of part three. Um, and that person does a paste bin dump, which was linked to through a uh, what's now considered an unofficial Q drop. And it creates this psychological profile of who is likely behind it. And of course, that psychological profile also lines up really closely with Ron Watkins. Um and it's after that that Q locks down the account with uh, a secure trip code. Not a super secure, but a secure trip code. And the secure trip code only works at that point on 8chan. Um, you can't take, it's not modular. Uh, so that's, that's when, that's the moment where Q is like completely tied. And of course, there are ways out. Um, Fred had proposed one of those ways, which would be to use a cryptographic signature or PGP. some other. Yeah, PGP. Um, and of course, Q, when 8kun returns after a three month, uh, uh, three months of 8chan being offline, Q doesn't post a PGP key, doesn't, doesn't post any kind of cryptographic signature. It's just like, 
hey guys, uh, rig for red. <laughs> let's keep this. Let's keep this party going. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, you know that that to me is a moment. You know, if I was if, if I was running something like Q, I would sure want a, a backdoor strategy at that point. But Q doesn't even for a second consider it, and it's always cracked me up when Ron says, uh, you know, in Tokyo Alley, you can see the scene right when Akun comes back online, and he goes. Uh, oh, Q could Q was able to post, and I could even see the website. That yet. was amazing. Yeah. That was so. <laughs> yeah, that's such a fucking crazy thing to say. I mean, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. And you're even like, well, how? And you're just like, he just really wanted to. Yeah, he like he just really, really he just really wanted to post. It's like, well, I guess if he if he the will is there. <laughs> uh, you know, Colin, there's so much to say about this, but I want to just go back to the actual creation of the documentary itself because, first of all, the graphics are fucking insane. I mean, honestly, like the top-of-the-line graphics I've ever seen and so much ingenuity behind them. Uh, like the little uh, pen drawing character, the blurred-out guy, the, the fact that you use the Cicada Moth guy over the Cicada 311 Anon. Just absolutely cutting-edge, very clever stuff. I, I'm assuming HBO funding was integral in getting <laughs> these graphics. Of course, the intro is just mind-blowing in itself, Quickly talk about that, how much you were involved in the editing. I, I think that I heard you talk about how there was an, a different editor at the beginning and the end. Um, and then also just the risk, because this was a three-year project. You had serious access to these people. As my brother mentioned, Ron and Jim weren't named as potential suspects until recently. When you're looking at the whole QAnon movement, your interest was there so many years ago, but then QAnon kind of exploded. Uh, you know, about a year ago, and there was probably so many different uh, converging interests of people pitching documentaries, pitching the subject, trying to get into this space. And did you feel the pressure, this competition? How did you have confidence in your skills to know that you were ahead of the curve enough to like put this project front, you know, and center to to know that it would be a serious interest to people at the beginning? And then were you worried that it was getting so popular that you might not have been able to get there first in terms of putting the six-part series out? Oh, gosh, there's a lot of great questions in there, and I wasn't taking notes to unpack all of them. <laughs> may, <laughs> Sorry, there's a lot. You may need to go back. Um, where to where to begin? Um, I guess I can answer the last question, and then we can reverse engineer. Okay. So I was... I, I was aware come July that there were a lot of people pitching Q projects, mm -hmm. and uh, but I but none of I mean we were in the middle of COVID as well, so it wasn't like people could go out with mm -hmm. cameras and film a normal production. And I had this holistic view of all sides of this story that had been chronicling for a number of years, uh, but I was concerned that just because I didn't have the same sort of prominence. Uh, as some of these other figures, you know, sort of uh, powerful figures in the documentary space, um, that the project might get lost in the noise. Uh, and we had seen boom cycles with Q, um, where it gets it gets really it becomes a big sort of news item, and then it kind of disappears. But then there's you know a lot of growth that accompanies it. And of course, July of 2020 was another one of these big boom cycles. And once Trump came out in August and uh, you know quote unquote answered the queue, uh, that was almost the the peak. Um, although I actually think the real peak was a couple months later when it was brought up again during a town hall. 
Wait, when did uh, are you talking about the answer to Q at the one press conference in the in the White House? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, where she okay. says like, I know they really like me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so that you know, so everybody was pitching Q projects at that point, um, and I knew back in July I saw the direction that things were headed, and I also saw that. Uh, you know, censorship against anything covering Q was increasing. Right. Didn't matter if you were critical, neutral, positive, didn't matter. Uh, you couldn't talk about it at a certain point. You know, they were banning hashtags. I'm like, gosh, if I release this thing completely independently, what's going to happen to this project? Will I even be able to find an audience or will it just be banned regardless of what it says or shows? Um, so I knew I needed help. And I didn't have uh, Adam McKay not somebody that I knew going into this. Um, I just knew, I had known actually since January that I really wanted to try to get him on board. I was a huge fan of The Big Short, um, you know, which is really unpacked the mechanics of, of the, the banking housing crisis. I th- thought he was going to get the tone of the series and, and what it was going for um, and might be down for the risk involved with putting this out there. Um, so I asked everybody I knew, you know, hook and crook, like, like, hey, is, do you have any connection to this guy? Um, and I, I have a friend who's a, a, a entertainment reporter for Reuters. We met at a film festival a number of years ago. He's like, oh, I know McKay's publicist. And put me in touch. McKay's publicist put me in touch with somebody who worked for McKay. They put me eventually put me in touch with McKay. And I, I put together a, um, a secure iPad that had... 60 minutes of scenes that I'd cut um, spread across this what I was already pitching as a series. I mean, I knew what the... I already had the whole series mapped out. I had the, the whole thing beaded out. I had what I thought each episode was going to be, the A, B, and C stories. Um, and then I had scenes that I'd cut from each of those episodes that were then presented in this secure deck. And so that's what I got in front of McKay. Um, and they were on board almost immediately. Um, we we took it to HBO within a matter of weeks. Uh, we just had to get the, <laughs> the secure wow. iPad in front of them. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's how it all went down. Uh, of course, I was nervous at the time that that uh, the, the, the project might somehow, despite um, the production value and and the this the sort of scope um, might get lost in the noise. And yeah. so, yeah, I feel really feel really fortunate that that things worked out that way i was also out of money <laughs> so <laughs> um, i don't know what i was going to do to get it to get it over the to get it over the finish line to answer the question about ron and jim or ron specifically being behind q that story didn't really find its way into the mainstream narrative until august of 2020 oh wow and it was fred who was the one who was getting that out there yeah Primarily. Wow. And so, of course, Fred was talking a lot with me. Um, he was, you, I was trying to keep a, a, a kind of an iron curtain <laughs> between uh, these characters. Um, but you can glean a certain amount from the line of questioning. And, uh, but, but at the same time, Fred was, he had a bone to pick particularly with Jim. So his biases were leaning towards Jim, even though uh, Jim, I don't believe, is was behind Q. Um, and so Jim Watkins became the, the primary suspect around that time. Um, but it was, but that was really when that took, that, that became sort of the main story. And then he, then Fred managed to get, um, 
he was working with Dale Baran, which I was aware of behind the scenes. He was telling me this stuff. Oh, he just didn't include in the story. And he, uh, you know, Dale was going to publish his story in The Atlantic. Um, something happened. He gave the story to Fred. And Fred's known as copy pasta or copy paste. You know, he he <laughs> takes screenshots of things and shares them uh, constantly. And he did that with the Atlantic article before it was published. He's like, oh, they're not going to publish the article? And he published a part of it. Uh, and that caused a lot of calamity. It wasn't great for Dale. Um, Atlantic wasn't happy. And then Dale took the story to Reply All. Um, and so that's where I think the first big sort of break around um, – around the Watkins involvement and all of this kind of happened was through that, that show at that point. Um, but no one was really suspecting Jim and Ron, uh, when I first, when I first went out to meet with them, I wasn't even necessarily suspecting them. You know, I was just going out there to, because they had the data. Um, but after that first meeting, I was like, wow, yeah, these guys are suspicious. (laughs) So, um, you know, we we stayed in touch after that point, um, but they became uh, they quickly became uh, prime suspects. Though I didn't know what the nature of the network was, I didn't know who they might be working with, mm-hmm. and I think that Ron was quite aware within six months' time that they were my prime suspects or that he was my prime suspect, uh, and that's why he tried to. That's why he fed me the whole Bannon, <laughs> the whole Bannon story. Um, yeah, that and, kind of came out of the blue. That was great. Well, yeah, but he had also, from the very first time I met Ron, he had planted the Bannon thing with me. So he had actually, at the end of the first interview where he sat cross-legged in the studio, he, he pulls me aside. He just says, well, you know, um, everything really lines up with Bannon. And... Uh, he's like, but if I was doing it, is what he says. I was like, yeah. if I was doing it, you know, I wouldn't be doing it personally. I'd have people who are working for me do it. So that's probably what Ban is doing. I just remember, I mean, if you if you think about it, it's really funny that here's somebody who's running, you know, this website. He's got uh, that's that's all based on anonymity <laughs> and, and privacy. Um, and he's what he's going to dox his most famous user to uh, someone he perceives as a, a journalist who's trying to out cue. Um, I don't think so. So, you know, he'd been planting that seed, I think, from the very beginning. And then he had built a really, um, you know, then he had this comprehensive data set uh, to, uh, to, to back it up. And it was, it was very convincing at the time. Um, and I think that the answer to that, of course, is that the data set was real, but that they had, but they had, uh, it wasn't that they had, just written a bunch of fake stuff. They had actually created a real forensics trail to point in that direction. Um, and that's why he showed it to me. That's uh, that that's incredible. I mean, there was the impression in the documentary that he didn't know you were filming or didn't, maybe you were slyly recording Ron saying that it's Bannon because it doesn't show him on camera at that point. So I was curious, did you, like what what actually happened there? Was that, was that sort of filmmaking magic to make it seem like he was saying that off the record or or were you was he knowingly being recorded when he was showing you that digital that fake digital trail well we had mics on um i actually i always tried to be really careful i would always tell people when i was recording when i wasn't um and that was just a random moment where we incidentally picked it up um 
I should say we. It was just me and Ron there. My backpack was actually out in the car. Um, I didn't. Uh, yeah, so I, I went back and was like, oh wait, you know that was captured, and I probably wouldn't have used it except he in later interviews he said he brought up Bannon and we talked about it. So it didn't feel to me like it was um, like it was like un- unreasonable to use at that point. And he had also so much of the story started to hinge around him trying to get me to look into Bannon that that it was really important, I think, for the audience to know just what he was doing behind the scenes. Um, but but uh, I but outside of that moment, I was always really, really uh, upfront with people about when I was recording and when I wasn't. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so amazing. Every At the end of every episode, you're left thinking that it could be someone else, which is just really, it's just an incredible way that you told this story through these six parts. You talked on Q Anonymous, the Q Anonymous podcast, how you got this access, because I think that a lot of people are pretty taken aback at how personal, you know, this was. Ron and Jim definitely weren't household names, uh, nor did they really invite press into their lives, into their homes. Uh, I, I mean... It, it still is fascinating, though, that you kind of worked your way up the chain of command, as you said, to gain these people's trust. I guess, you know, through your previous work as being a digital rights activist and I, I guess your intent to be neutral on the subject, but still it's like gaining Ron and Jim's trust, filming them so intimately for so many years, these private meetings, these phone calls, countless home visits. I mean, even a fucking sex club. Like, I guess maybe that's part of it, right? Like, um, but I mean, why, like, how, how did they trust you and no other press? Did you just kind of take a step back ever and be like, am I being trolled? Like, is this all a troll on me? And and are they using me in some way? Oh, well, of course I, (laughs) I want, you know, trolling journalists is like the gold standard. And he would often bring up to me, uh, you're a journalist. And I'm like, well, I really more of a filmmaker, investigative filmmaker. But, um, uh, I, I do think that what you see with the Bannon thing was like master trolling. Right. And he was hoping that I would take the bait on that as, as cover, um, so the, my calculation in relationship to all of the reasons why he might have told me that was based on the assumption that he was possibly trolling me um, and constantly asking the very question you just brought up, which is, what is their motive? Why are they talking to me? Um, and, and that's why the clues were often not in what they were telling me, but in how they changed their story or what they would leave out. Uh, and that's those became the the best clues. Um, if they suddenly didn't remember somebody's name, uh, the first time, <laughs> like we see in the end, you know, Ron would casually talk about Tracy Beans in one conversation, and another conversation, pretend like he had no idea who she was. Um, yeah. The, yeah. After the first time, I went there. Uh, the second time, they changed their stories, and suddenly they knew a lot less. They remembered a lot less. It was like they had. Um, put their heads together behind the scenes and, and come up with a, came up with a new narrative, um, which I thought, which, which again was revealing. Uh, and the first time that I went there, it, it was partially to discuss Q, but it was also to discuss the issues around digital free speech, uh, which, which is a big interest of mine. Uh, and of course they were running a maximalist free speech website. Um, so perhaps they thought in the beginning or maybe they kind of gave themselves permission to talk to me in part because um, 
I was interested in the digital rights aspect of it. I think it mm-hmm. was in part because they wanted to get their side of the story told. If I was there to interview Fred and there, they were, um, you know, they were starting to have a falling out with him. Um, I didn't know that at the time. So they may have at that point wanted to, um, wanted to have their side heard. It's also possible I was just the first person crazy enough to fly to the Philippines. <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't, I might just be first on the Besides scene. Besides Fred. Um, you know, it was just me going there with cameras too. I mean, I, sometimes I had some help. Uh, in the Philippines, I usually had one, I had a local film student who was helping me there. Um, but I think they also liked the DIY approach. And I think they, they, uh, they enjoyed the cat and mouse aspect of it. And their motivations for participating changed over time. You know, in the beginning, I think maybe those reasons I just mentioned were motivating them. But by the end, I think that they really wanted it documented. Mm -hmm. Um, And I and I don't and having heard from most everyone who's in the series uh, since the finale, uh, no one has said to me that they felt like the series was a misrepresentation of who they are um, on any Mm -hmm. side of it, which is really important to me. You know, I, I'm always thinking about this in the edit room. You know, what is their intention? Um, what are they, what are they, what's really going on? And, and and if they were to watch this, would they say, whether or not they like what they said, would they, would they agree that it was an accurate representation? Um, so whether or not they like everything in it, of course, there's a lot of things in it that they probably don't like. Um, but that doesn't mean that they feel that it's not fair or representative. It's so fascinating that you say that at first they had sort of this, you know, they, they maybe attempted to manipulate you and to troll you and they, but then by the end of it, they actually maybe even wanted to document it. And one of the first things that come, came to mind when you said that is this, that Ron just constantly seems to be uh, making it very public, his, or the, his addiction to pornography and his sort of his interest in sex, you know, that he really wanted you to go to a soapland, um, that he's playing hardcore pornography in his car as he's driving around, that he just sort of casually tells this story that he claims uh, a woman across from him on a on the airplane right over was masturbating to Game of Thrones. Just a lot of strange things that he threw out there. And, you know, Abby and I went to Japan, uh, I don't know, over five years ago. And so one of the connections I made while watching this is in Japan sort of the idea of hentai anime porn that depicts like children engage in sexual acts is fairly normalized in Japan. And so did that, did anything ever come up for you where you were like, this is so weird that the person that I'm thinking is Q is, uh, lives in sort of the society, you know, with, with the sort of heightened sexuality in a way, but then is also like really addicted to pornography and wants me to watch hardcore porn in his car while I'm trying to film him. I mean, did you, did any connections form for you in that regard? And how much did that weird you out? Or was, was that even maybe a clue for you (laughs) that, uh, (laughs) that they might've been Q? Well, the, I mean, the ban, the idea that it could be Bannon was a really helpful cover for both of us because we could both pretend like Bannon was Q while we were together. Um, so it, it gave it gave some sort of plausible deniability for us to keep spending time was in this cat and mouse game. Um, so that was helpful. But to answer your question, you know, he would play 
horn of the car most of the time, except for when I was filming. There were only a few <laughs> moments that he kept the the porn on um, when I when I when I was filming, um, and uh, and I had brought up to him. I was like, "Look, your your sex addiction is." Um, it's a, it seems to me to be a pretty big part of who you are. In fact, he has a very addictive personality in general, and he's funneled most of those tendencies into uh, into sex, it would seem. Um, you know, as you see in that one scene, he says that he used to be a, you know, a super al- alcoholic, quote-unquote. Um, and, and so I, I, there's something about, and I thought it was really important to show that, and I don't think that the show can, even depicts quite how extreme it may be um, because he takes things to extremes. And if you're trying to understand the psychology of Q and the kind of person who might be willing to to do something like that, um, understanding like addictive personality and, and just how far someone like Ron will take anything um, is, really, is really important in understanding the psychology of Q, I think. Um, and they were on their best behavior, according to them, when they were around me. So what you're seeing in the in the series is them on their on their best behavior, I guess. Um, but the uh, you know the 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 stuff around the sex addiction, um, you know, he that was something that he was less inclined to talk about on camera, actually. But it's just so fascinating that Q's entire thing is this, you know. Uh, this global network of pedophiles and it's all about children being abused right it's just an interesting kind of tie-in yeah to the fact that ron has this obsession with porn well that's the weird part about the chans in general um is that i mean there's any number of reasons people might po- post that kind of content on there um you know and it's not like it only happens on hn what Facebook removed 68 million child pornography posts or, you know, that like illegal content in one year alone, according to their transparency report. Um, It's close to that number. So this problem is ubiquitous on the Internet and it's a problem that all these platforms are dealing with. But there is something um, ironic about, you know, this, this movement that is all about uh, hunting pedophiles and exposing pedophiles, uh, sort of coexisting in a space where a lot of pedophiles frequent. Right. At any point, were you a little bit frightened? Uh, like, for example, I mean, you have Ron basically mimicking that scene in Kill Bill where he's <laughs> punching the board over and over again. And then he takes you on that extremely sketchy hike that looks like you could fall off the mountain at any time then just swinging that giant mallet in the air in a kind of menacing way. Was there any point during filming, since it was mostly just you, not even having stringers along, like you with the camera, that you just felt a little like, oh, fuck, like what what did I get myself into here? Yeah, I think that's intentional. I think that they (laughs) like to... That it's part of their marketing strategy, but it's also part of who they are, and they're not even sure how serious they're being about any of that stuff, and just how real the sort of implied threat is. Um, but I do think that they're that they are leaning into that uh, a little bit. You can see with his hammer when I turn my back that he like kind of readjusts it, and you know he's I'm not sure he even knows how much he's playing or what he's capable of. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, there there was always this kind of it's like always sunny in Philadelphia, right? The implication uh, there was always <laughs> there was always this implication. Um, I think in a lot of those moments in, in the mountains climbing scene, absolutely uh, that 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 uh, kind of implied threat is part of what and that tension is part of what makes the scene work. And one of the things I think about whenever I'm filming is whatever emotion I'm experiencing is probably an emotion that the audience will experience as well. So uh, if it if it does feel like there's some kind of tension or threat um, to me in a moment, um, that's probably going to translate. So that's and that's true for that scene or going to the pig farm or a lot of these moments. Um, and a huge part of A-Chan or A-Kun's marketing was around the uh, mystery and the idea that it's this scary, edgy, dangerous place. Um, and I think that Ron and Jim are almost perfect mirrors of the site that they own and operate. And th- they use a bl- mixture of absurdity and um, sort of pop culture trolling as a as a as a kind of um, per, a costume that they that they wear, and it can be tricky sometimes to detect what it's what lurks beneath um, and what it's masking. And I think you can see that um, in a number of scenes where where it kind of the fire in Jim's eyes kind of creeps out, you know. Um, and it, you know this idea that it's masking something that is perhaps much more sinister, uh, and so that's that's what's difficult. How how are they being the? Do they even know what who they are anymore, um, or or, or did they lose themselves to the characters that they were playing? I guess one of the things that I was wondering after watching this, Colin, is like you were around Ron quite a bit, and you know if Ron was the one posting his cue and sort of the later iterations of cue, what like emotional effect would that have on a human being? You know, to think that he was basically in control of one of the biggest uh, influencers, radicalizers in the United States, besides maybe Donald Trump himself, you would think that that would give any normal person like some kind of adrenaline rush or some kind of like emotional like an intense effect on them and, and how their vibe is. And I'm just wondering at any point when you were hanging around him, did you ever think to yourself, okay, if this guy is the one posting his cue, you know, what is, what kind of power is he feeling right now? What kind of, what is this doing to his emotional state? Cause I don't know if you explored that in the doc, but I was interested in that while watching it. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Well, absolutely. I mean, that I, that's another clue, I think. You know, why Why did he want me to keep filming with him? Imagine if you were behind something like Q. You were in charge of this massive global movement. Um, how You had the kind of psychology of someone who would do something like that. Would you, and you were making huge moves in history, would you want that documented? Because um, he didn't know at the time how it was all going to play out. And... And I think also that Q to him is like a, a character that he 
that he would play, he could play. Um, I think that that was how he would compartmentalize it, you know, and he's even said that to me. He said it along the way and he said it to me since the series aired that he learned a long time ago that internet personalities are the, the, the world is more interesting if you play these larger than life internet uh, personalities. Um, so I think he saw Q as a, as a character. Um, and that's how he was able to sort of differentiate, but at the same time it merged with his own personality. So uh, this is what I believe anyway. And, you know, and he started, um, and of course you would, it would affect, it would affect someone and, and, inst- and they'd probably want credit at a certain point. And that's why I think mm-hmm. that wrong comes as close as he possibly can to admitting to it. Uh, but he can't, but I think in his mind, he can't actually admit to it or else there would be a, there would be serious legal consequences for doing so. Um, but the ways that he would talk about Q, the idea that, that uh, he would always, he would constantly have insight into things that Q would do next or like, and then he would walk it back and be like, but I can't speak for Q. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and he would uh, be right. Uh, <laughs> that's why he, he comes as close as he can to, to, uh, to saying it without saying it. The protagonist of your documentary is clearly Fred Brennan, uh, who's the founder of 8chan. And I mean, you originally went to the Philippines. I know that you said that you, you, he, he respected your work because you had trolled Mark Zuckerberg in the past. And so he kind of opened himself up to you, which was the inroad to all of these other building blocks. And I'm sure everyone was a potential suspect, of course. Uh, but at what point did you kind of cross him off the list? Because I'm sure you were suspicious of him, especially since his literally, like his entire fucking apartment is filled with Q, not just the big blue Q next to him. <laughs> like it was like Q paintings and Q little like things on his desk. It was like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, why is his apartment so filled with Q? Like, so, so talk about that. It's a real red herring for, it was a real red herring for me. <laughs> uh, you know, you have, cause at the time, uh, he was still working with Ron and Jim he Q was his favorite letter. Um, <laughs> he he was leaning into it while I was there with him. Uh, that he was aware that I thought he might be behind it. Um, <laughs> he uh, he had the he certainly has the intellect. And if if he was interested in doing something like that as a way of sort of trolling uh, the right in his mind. Um, that is something that Fred would certainly be capable of. Um, and that was a theory that a lot of people had, that it was like a liberal troll. Um, that was another working theory. Sure. So, of course, after that first meeting with Fred, I was like, wow, well, he he was a high-level suspect. Um, but they all were. And I, I suspected that maybe they were working together. And then over time, as he was splintering with them, I... I was even asking myself, well, is it possible that um, that he, that they're doing this all as theater? That that Fred is actually still writing the Q drops, or is, or is or is doing it in some way? But the, the tension between them is all for show. <laughs> That's not the case. But I did I did entertain the possibility, of course, because they're they're all used to playing anonymous characters on the internet, um, and they're they're used to these kinds of strategic strategic games. 
And as you see in the series, <laughs> the the line between um, the internet and reality for them uh, is almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. Right. There's that really interesting part where Fred just kind of it dawns on him. He's just like, this is serious shit. Like the the internet's real. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is my life. Yeah. Because you know? they, I mean, they were just playing these intense. games on the internet, and and then suddenly right. they have real world consequences. Um, right. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's actually almost a surprise for for all of them that, that it's that it's possible for the internet to have this for these for an anonymous persona and for that kind of sort of trolling behavior to, to, to actually feel the consequences. Of course, many other people have felt those consequences when when yeah. they get trolled or or uh, you know brigaded or any of those or or uh, um, swatted. But uh, you know, for 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 these guys, um, I think it was it was. Well, I don't want to say it's completely new because they they've been the the source of a lot of attacks uh just because they run uh 8chan, right? Mm-hmm. Um so they're used to being trolled. But uh having um but having to flee the Philippines is another story. Yeah, yeah. And you already kind of um discussed a subject that I was going to ask you about, uh, which is, you know, as, as if you're really sort of looking at all possibilities, it makes sense why you might even think that part of their falling out at first could have been orchestrated or the, just at the very least you'd have to examine that possibility. So I guess just touching on that, what, what point were you con- absolutely convinced? I mean, it probably didn't take you up until that, um, that like immigration or uh, citizenship hearing <laughs> that Fred tried to no. grab. You probably you probably were already you know reach a conclusion before that. So, at what point did you stop entertaining that possibility? Uh, I think I completely stopped entertaining the possibility when. I mean, I, I treat it more like percentages. Like I think I was probably at like. Ninety-eight percent. Fred isn't involved by the time he was actively campaigning to keep Eight Chan offline in perpetuity. Yeah, um, during and, that three-month per uh, period, or even before that, probably. Yes, yeah. and by the time they got to the point of of trying to broker a a peace uh, deal, I guess between uh, between the guy, the Eight Chan guys, and Fred. Um, you know, that it was a hundred percent that there was no way Fred was behind Q at that point. Mm-hmm. And there was this sort of, um, you know, there was a, a little bit of a cathartic moment. Uh, there was a couple of little cathartic moments for Fred that were sort of shown in the documentary. And one of them was sort of this sense of guilt that it seemed like he had. And you sort of examined, uh, this reasoning of why he became so aggressive against not just Jim, but just shutting, wanting to shut down HN. And it seemed like, um, his char- his change of heart was because he didn't he didn't want sort of his legacy or name associated with what they had done um, to HN. And I don't know what did you think about his methods in terms of you know sort of be- wanting to do this free speech experiment and and sort of opening the door for HN, creating that, and then sort of turning not just against Jim and the website, but also sort of getting into this counter-information war mindset where he started to actually get their servers, you know, to drop them and things like that. And he was calling, you know, I don't know, I think he said he talked to the CEO of of one of their servers and, you know, they... Cloudflare. Yeah, Cloudflare. So how did you feel about that sort of huge turnaround for him? Like, because that seems like, you know, going very, very pro-free speech to sort of anti-free speech in a way, you know, you could argue. So what was that like to witness that? 
They say in rivalry, all positions are lost. And yeah. I think that these guys just took a, you know, all of them did whatever they had to to win. And the same is true with Fred, and he would agree with that, um, with his his sort of moves and counter moves. Though I think that Fred, I mean, I was figuring out, part of why I was so interested in this story was to wrap my head around these bigger questions around digital free speech and um, figure out what my view was and, and not not necessarily have a definitive view until or near definitive view until all was said and done after sort of three years of analysis. But, um, you know, Fred, uh, Fred made a very, came at it from a very strong and I guess different position than I have now, certainly, um, which was, you know, do anything you can to, to take, to take these sites offline. Um, and it was, he, when I first met him, he was already starting to waver on the, the the free speech side of things. And I understand why. I mean, if you're looking at the kind of content that's on 8chan, um, it's, I, I, as he says, it's not hard to have your faith in the First Amendment shaken a little. Yeah. And Fred also, and this, there just wasn't really room for this in the story. And, and while I was with him in those earlier years, his wife didn't want to, he, he got married while, um, I mentioned this, he, he got married, but he got married to someone who's very religious. In fact, the religion that she was a part of, she's not just a part of it, her dad was like a priest. Uh, and it's it's largely considered a cult, <laughs> this uh, sort of Christian sect, um, which Fred has called it that since uh, he's no longer with his wife. Um, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I just didn't include that in the in the show, um, but uh, I think that that was also influencing his worldview a little bit. How could it not? You know, he's you've got a, a wife who's like, how could you be involved with this this um, with, with something like eight chan and with these guys? Yeah. Uh, so you know, I maybe that <laughs> colored his views a bit as well. Um, but he would say at this point, I think he said on Twitter, I don't want to put words in his mouth that. Uh, if you're looking for someone to be your sort of free speech champion, look somewhere else. You know, talk to Chris Poole, talk to talk to Hiroyuki or or who, whomever um, is what he would what he would would say. So it was kind of wild to watch that. It was kind of wild to watch that that turn in in real time. And you know, I would I would challenge him on some of this stuff. And I, I was actually reading this book by Nadine Strassen, who um, ran the ACLU for I think about ten years. Uh, it's called Hate. And uh, I was just uh, reviewing it again this morning, and I hadn't seen this quote before. I don't know how I missed it. I, I'm like, after I saw it, I would have absolutely put it in the documentary if I had seen it before. But there's a quote in there from the CEO of Cloudflare. And it's before, it's like a year before um, he pulled the plug on 8chan. And it, it the quote is in relationship to him pulling the plug on the Daily Stormer. And he... I don't have the book in front of me right now, but he basically says uh, he woke up one day and he was in a bad mood and he pulled the plug on the Daily Stormer. And he said that no one should have the power to do that. Um, And he said, quote unquote, that was the day he felt that he destroyed the internet. (laughs) Wow. Um, So, 
you know, the C, and I think that he's right. No private corporation should have the power to do that. And, you know, we have to figure out ways to have the First Amendment, like the Fourth Amendment, we need ways to have the Constitution apply to the internet. And we shouldn't be passing the buck to these corporations to have control over what speech can and cannot be allowed because it always starts as the worst, most vile stuff. And then there's a slow creep into, into things I think most people would consider unnecessary. And that's, that's why the Supreme Court time and time again has ruled, um, you know, in, in, in favor of allowing the most objectionable speech, uh, which is what we see in, at the beginning of, of part four of the series. Um, I think the challenge is not in in what speech we should allow online, but in the ways in which that speech gets amplified, how the underlying algorithms work, um, and revisiting Silicon Valley's business model, which I think is more responsible for for the polarization in society than anything else. Wow. I couldn't agree more with you. And as someone who was actually on the receiving end from the fallout of the Russiagate hysteria back from the DNI report in 2016, I've seen how the slippery slope can just snowball into something like this, where, you know, purging QAnon accounts in general for no other reason other than just the fact that they are QAnon accounts on Twitter and other forms of social media. I mean, that is really... uh, dangerous because you're pushing these people into an alternate lane of reality. And what does that mean for them? What does that do to validate the beliefs? Uh, There's so many questions that arise that you bring up that I want to get into in a second. But I think it really does keep going back to the 2016 election for me, because this is where this notion of, you know, fake news cost Hillary Clinton the election. And this is where the seeds of QAnon essentially started. I mean, through Pizzagate, the Podesta drops, Uh, WikiLeaks essentially validating a lot of these things, whether it be the Seth Rich phenomenon or Pizzagate in general, you know, retweeting people who were parroting the spirit cooking and other kind of questionable things that came out of the Podesta leaks. And that's where you see characters like Jack Posobiec and other questionable kind of fascist adjacent characters getting involved with WikiLeaks at this time. Did you ever follow those threads? Because you, of course, the documentary goes off on so many interesting precursors to QAnon, like Gamergate and Anonymous and things that all sowed the seeds for this. But I feel like you didn't go too much into Pizzagate. Um, But I guess what are your thoughts on that and how that really kind of jump-started all of this? Well, I mean, you can... can trace the lineage that leads up to QAnon, at least back to something awful uh, in the <laughs> 90s. And, and, you can, and you can kind of see how the, the methods that led to QAnon um, would eventually, or, or were, were sort of formed over time through kind of trial and error. Um, uh, I mean, Q isn't the first even anonymous persona to capture the imagination mm-hmm. of the internet um, and get a bunch of people believing in a LARP. Uh, which I think the big one was John Titer in 2000 on uh, Coast to Coast um, forum. You know, this is somebody who pretended to be, uh, or maybe they were, a <laughs> uh, time traveler from the future uh, who was uh, who was like saying World War Three is coming and it, like time traveled back in order to stop World War Three and had this and had built this whole story with had like um, you know graphics of the machine and time travel theory and. And uh, and uh, I think 
like uh, the icon from the the military that was uh, the time travel like icon, you know. And so people would analyze all this stuff and 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 look into whether or not this person was really uh, behind it. And, uh, and and eventually, I believe, it was traced to some lawyer in Florida, uh, you know, a few years later, who was behind the whole thing. But you know, we can we can so we can kind of trace going all the way back. Um, leading up to leading up to something like leading up to something like Q, and so we we, we do do kind of a quick um, overview of the this sort of arc of digital campaigns, people organizing anonymously behind the scenes, um, the strategies that 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 people were using, uh, and it wasn't really though until the 2016 election that we saw mimetic warfare um, be integrated into a presidential campaign. Uh, and I think that we there were um, think tanks and uh, ex-mill subcontractors that were bolstering a lot of this stuff, um, a lot of the usual suspects, some of which you see in the story. But, you know, a lot of just – there were a lot of overlapping interests as well uh, between networks of trolls and hackers and people who've been involved in these various campaigns, you know, people who had real anti-government sentiment, others who just are black-pilled and kind of want to be nihilistic and kind of want to see the world burn or don't really care. Um, and for them, Trump was like a big joke. And they thought it would be funny to try to get him elected. And so there was also this – there was a mixture of some of these political forces like Bannon who knew how to mobilize incels and gamers and some of these like disaffected groups online and get them to engage in these campaigns. Um, and so some of those networks were preexisting before Q, uh, Q took off. It's not like these people were necessarily meeting in reality. They'd have Discord rooms or Twitter rooms or whatever uh, where they were all communicating. Um, so a lot of the networks were pre-existing or, or uh, what you might call it, uh, IRC chat. Yeah, but I guess it was I, – I, I felt like there was something different about the way it was legitimized by WikiLeaks, like the seeds mm. that were planted for the Podesta emails that then – You mean everything around Guccifer – and I guess the Podesta drop, the fact that WikiLeaks was promoting the spirit cooking and there were a couple Pizzagate. They promoted the Ben Swan segment about Comet Pizza. Right, I think that's what right, Abby's asking. If, right, right, if you right. think that gave it some extra spice that that made yeah. QAnon able to exist in the first place by sort of making people feel that Hillary Clinton was going to be arrested, um, made people feel that there was some sort of evidence that all the people associated with Clinton were in some kind of pedophile network. Like it was sort of piggybacking, or at least that was our perception is sort of piggybacking off that energy, that intensity. And yeah, and I, I honestly thought really Julian point, Assange actually. was like trolling us. I mean, I honestly thought that it was like a troll on his behalf at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good point because they, uh, you know, I've seen Pizzagate more as a prototype, but it also, it also, some of the narratives, um, particularly and the and the political alignments, um, followed into Q, and WikiLeaks. You can see a shift in WikiLeaks, and there's actually an, an article in the Atlantic that came out a couple of years ago, and at the end of the article, it's really stuck with me. You know, Julian Assange was in a really dark place, as you would be if you were in his shoes. Mm -hmm. And you could tell that 
he says something to the effect of, you know, he's going to use whatever strategies are necessary at this point, which is a bit of a turn for him. And so I think that you see some new alignments happening in 2016, 2017. You know, I'm, I, I think that he is interested at that point in doing whatever is necessary to get to get a pardon and get his life back. Um, so you do see some overlapping, some surprising overlapping interests that I think helped, that I think continued on into Q. And if you look at who the Q narrative really benefits, benefits Julian Assange, um, benefits Flynn, benefits Trump's embattled inner circle. Um, you know, it's very pro-army, pro-military, um, generally anti uh it's kind of on the fence about the NSA. Um, anti. It loves Binny though. What's that? Yeah. It loves Binny. Q. <laughs> yes, loves Binny. Loves Binny. Well, Binny is anti NSA too, right? If yeah. He was an NSA, <laughs> NSA whistleblower, and that was kind of that was wild as fuck to be on the call with that Binny and Roger Stone's head of social media and be like, wait a second, like Binny wants to get in touch with Q. The I mean, before Edward Snowden, he was the biggest NSA whistleblower, you know. Um, so this idea that now he was he was on this call, being basically saying, "Oh, you know, Q is in his mind uh, releasing uh, credible information, and he wants to help Q do it better," um, was a fascinating turn to witness. And uh, you know, and I think that um, you could see these groups of these sort of power players kind of who who would who were looking for a way to to attack um the establishment in Washington all kind of aligning you can understand why Benny and WikiLeaks and Roger Stone um why their interests might align right absolutely and i guess one overall theme here colin and and one of my main interests in QAnon is sort of the narrative that originally drove it. Like, what was the story that that Q and the sort of surrounding, you know, connective tissue was trying to tell? And sort of from my point of view, it seemed like a really big backbone to that narrative was this idea that somehow these patriots inside the government that were either in military intelligence or good guys, white hats inside the CIA or whatever, had secretly recruited Donald Trump like years before the election, to run against the deep state, essentially. And this sort of narrative also, even way before Alex Jones was pushing Q for the small time that he did with Corsi, this sort of uh, became the InfoWars narrative that Trump was fighting the deep state. Uh, Roger Stone even would come on InfoWars and say that Trump was a secret 9-11 truther, which for Alex Jones's audience was, you know, that would instantly convert pretty much his whole audience into being like, I'm going to vote for Trump now. Um, so I feel like yeah, that was a I th huge... I think, yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that the Q narrative itself was really born out of those, the kind of stories that Alex Jones and Corsi and, and many of these other figures had been pushing for a while, um, for years into the run-up to Q. And and to what those who were on the chans already, kind of, specifically on poll, already believed um, and had been discussing or researching. So when the Q narrative started, it wasn't like it was something brand new. It was 
pulling from all of these threads, like the ones you just described, and reflecting those threads back in the form of questions, giving people the, the sort of hope that all of this stuff that they believe, these, these sometimes wild theories, were actually true and secretly happening in the background. Um, you know, it was, it was just the format that, that really changed. So, um, and to your point about Corsi uh, and Alex Jones pushing this story of there being a, uh, you know, a group of white hats who came to Trump. I mean, yeah, you can find, there's a, there's a video of him from, I think it's 2016 where he's talking in front of an audience and he says that outright. He's like, these generals came to me and they said, Trump um, said that, you know, we're, uh, Corsi said that. Oh, Corsi. Oh, okay. Interesting. Sorry. Corsi says this. He, he's, he's, um, he's giving this speech and he says, you know, a group of generals came to me and they said that they were going to run a coup against Obama, but they changed their minds because, uh, because Donald Trump, um, and the, Donald Trump is going to run for the presidency. So this is a this is something that Corsi was pushing behind the scenes that well predates Q. And I actually, the first time I saw that video, I just thought Corsi was full of shit. I was like, this guy, look what fucking generals are talking to Corsi, telling him <laughs> that that they were going to run a coup against Obama. Like, what a crazy thing to say. Um, but now, having talked to uh, one of those generals myself. General Vallely, um, knowing how General Flynn operates, uh, I do think it is possible that uh, these generals were also communicating with Corsi beforehand and might well have told him those narratives. Now, whether or not there was any sort of secret plan is besides the point. They, these are people who are very skilled at psyops and planting narratives that they want to will into existence. So it is more likely that that was what was happening. And in fact, you can actually, I've, I've looked into this and I just didn't have tons of room for it in the story. You only see some of it in episode five. But these ex-mill guys, these, um, you know, generals um, who, who for whatever reason have their agendas that they want to plant out into the mainstream will use these inflection points like Jerome Corsi and now like QTubers in order to... Um, push these push these narratives and uh you know run run what they would consider i guess to be psychological operations in order to um in order to enact what in order to you know get society to become whatever it is that they want society to become um so they're willing to say things which are completely false in hopes of making them become true and you can trace it way back with these guys i mean they've been doing it for a while so uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if these generals were the ones who did go to Corsi, make those claims, and then start planting this story that would eventually become um, the story that Q absorbed. That is that is absolutely fascinating. And I think what you're describing is a really much more nuanced version of saying, oh, QAnon is some kind of psyop, or no, QAnon is not a psyop because that's giving you know the people who believe in it an out, and it's also you know, uh, it implies some kind of conspiracy. What you're describing is a much more nuanced tapestry that it could just be that some of these people inside military intelligence are just doing this independent. They're just doing this on their own for their own bizarre, you know, self-interested motives. Um, I mean, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, if that's what you're saying, but 
there was a really interesting. Well, I would say X X male. X. Okay, yeah, that's true. Because there's a really, really interesting part of your documentary where you actually get a hold of that guy. uh, I believe his name was Paul Valley, and he's actually telling you what you're sort of describing. He's saying, "Oh yeah, there's this network of people we call it uh, the something of Northern Virginia and Northern Virginia, yeah." And, And is that kind of what you're saying, or? How far did well, you yeah, look you into can, that? So, so I think the question when you see something like what you're describing where General Paul Valley is getting me on the horn and telling me these things, I'm asking myself, well, why is he telling me these things? What story is he trying to get out into the world? Um, you know, and uh, we see again the same thing happen when Valley is sort of using his proxies to get the, um, the sort of Osama bin Laden uh, is still alive. Story out, and he and he successfully gets it into Trump's Twitter feed, right? Using one of those proxies, and so why was he calling me that day, telling me those things, telling me that there is this army of Northern Virginia? He then goes on Patriot Soapbox, which is the twenty-four hour QAnon news station, and says the same things. So, um, I think there's a few different ways you can look at it. Was he trying to will the army of Northern Virginia into existence? Is it possible that there was no such thing? But that what they were hoping is people would start asking about it. You know, maybe people would listen and be like, oh, is there this thing that I can join that's Trump's, you know, special, uh, you know, military outfit? You know, was he trying to create it um, by saying it? Uh, And that's something that he that man is very skilled at. So that's one of the things that I was kind of questioning when he was saying that. But at the same time, he does also run a network for you know, ex-mill guys who are looking to stay in the game. Um, And then they have their sort of priorities and agenda of what they want the world to look like and what they think America should look like. And so um, there is this, and I don't know how big the network is. I know what he said, but I don't know how big it actually is. (laughs) Um, You know, of of guys who, um, who are... Who are who are working together? I mean, he also, um, you know, is like a head advisor for Senator Security Policy, uh, you know, which is a big think tank in DC. That's ridiculous. You know, oh, that's so the Frank Gaffney these... think tank, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. I believe so. Um, I'd have to, I, yeah, I'd have to check. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not 100 percent on that one, but uh, you know, they're they're big on on influencing kind of policy in the Middle East. It's sort of a, it's it's like a, it's a I guess I. I probably leans in the sort of neocon direction. Um, yeah. Particularly around like Iran policy. Very far but, right hawkish stuff. Yeah. So what you start to see is that there's this kind of, there's just all these overlapping networks with shared interests. Um, in, 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 and so these narratives had existed long before Q and Q was just sort of um, reflecting it back, uh, things, ideas that have been floated on the chans um, that were being fed to a large extent by these personalities who are trying to plant these narratives into the wild. So, yeah, it is a much more nuanced view because just saying that Q was a psyop and that it was all a plan, no, I think that Q grew much more organically. Um, but what I think the challenge is is looking at all of these um, these sort of overlapping networks and trying to dissect who was who was involved at exactly what point? What elements got absorbed into the narrative? Um, but uh, I think that's why it's it's not a a one size fits all solution with exactly how the Q narrative formed. Of course, but 
again, you didn't need to be uh, you didn't need to be General Paul Valley to be Q. <laughs> you, you just needed to <laughs> be really familiar with what um, the Anons already researched and believed. But there's one person who really sucked up almost all the energy here who sort of became the public face, who was in the military, who was really into Q, and that was Michael Flynn, of course, and his son a little bit. But, you know, Michael, Michael Flynn taking that Q oath really amped up Q and legitimized it in a really serious way. Um, and I'm just wondering, did you at any point try to get a hold of Michael Flynn? Or did you attempt to interview him? And what are your just general thoughts on Flynn's role and all this, and and what what was that like watching that unfold? Yeah, I mean, of course, I tried. I tried to interview all of the major players. Um, Flynn was very, very tricky because he was facing a, some pretty serious charges, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> so it wasn't exactly easy to get him to go on the record about uh, in an interview about Q and I. I had actually through Valley's camp or somebody who was introduced to me through Valley's camp who who has ties again to center security policy, I was told that this person had direct ties to Flynn, so I sent them a bunch of questions being like here's what I'd like to ask Flynn about Q. Uh never never heard back on that one. I have interviewed people who were um big Flynn support like who were working directly with Flynn. Um it just didn't make sense to include that in the series. I didn't think that it it added that much. Um, you know, they had said that Flynn, and again, take this with a grain of salt, um, but these were people who had, had been working on his legal defense fund, and they said that Flynn was, there, were, there was um, disagreement internally on whether or not Q was a good or a, was, was a net positive or a net negative for them, um, at, least, at least earlier on. And I think actually you sort of see that play out, right? Because... Uh, there's that period where Jack Posobiec and the MAGA coalition and um, some of these sort of faces of the new right are turning against Q, mm-hmm. um, trying to trying to derail it. But at a certain point, it just has too much power and momentum, and they then they're like, "Well, if you can't beat them, join them." <laughs> uh, and I think that's that's basically what we see happen. And so that's when they just you know start embrace embracing infamy or whatever <laughs> embracing Q like they just they just jump on the the Q train completely so i think that in the beginning well, they were th- they saw it as as probably a positive and then it probably wavered to like oh no this thing is kind of out of our control uh and then it it, it just became too powerful for them to ignore and then they just they 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 immerse themselves in it but i can tell you behind the scenes that Flynn was messaging, according to Liz Crokin and Jordan Sather, sending them personal messages telling them to keep going. That's fucking And that's crazy. in 2018. My God. Well, that's the, that's the big question. Why did they take such a risk? And I'm talking about Trump's inner circle. Because Michael Flynn is bizarre enough, uh, the direct messaging with Q, but then you have Trump himself. I mean, he was completely in sync with QAnon messaging for a big part of his presidency. He wasn't just making nods to the movement, saying outright the storm is coming, or is that a bad thing to fight pedophiles? But then just validating so many wild theories that were being put out there by Q2 people and retweeting them and then sharing their talking points with the press. It's kind of fucking crazy that he was doing that. But then also it's like if this was his team that was taking Q messaging and and loving the fact that they were thriving off of this Q community – it's a huge risk to put your trust 
into Jim and Ron Watkins, who had ultimate control of Q. They could have pulled the trigger at any time and just been like, all right, Trump's dead to us. Like, it's just so strange. Trump was obviously aware of it. We know Eric Trump posted that meme. What was your thoughts like when Trump started actually signaling to this? And did you think that he was directly involved somehow behind the scenes? Or did you write that off? And and also just address like the risk factor of Trump's team putting their trust into this Q community and, and using it and exploiting it the way they did. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the things you're bringing up are really in the last year. You know, mm-hmm. 2020 was the year that they that they openly embraced Q. And around the time that, that Trump was facing impeachment, that was when he also started to actively retweet a lot of Q accounts. Um, before that, it had been much more much more discreet. It was mostly in 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 the form of not denying Q, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see all of these big players in DC starting to gravitate towards Q. End of twenty nineteen, um, moving into twenty twenty, and then openly embracing it uh, in the run up to the election. And uh, I think that they just did a calculation at a certain point and said, "Well, this is." you know, good for us. Um, <laughs> like, like they, whatever help they could get. Right. And, uh, and I don't, I still don't know what exactly the level of communication was behind the scenes between any of these players and the, and, and the Watkinses, or if they even necessarily knew who they were talking to, you know, you can always just be communicating anonymously. Um, I imagine that there was, was some, some throughput, um, at a, at a certain point. You know, uh, Ron becoming the uh, face of uh, election fraud for the Trump campaign, I think, is fairly telling. How does somebody just <laughs> just vault into yeah. the stratosphere there? I mean, he he had a close relationship at that point with Jason Sullivan. He was using his tool, who's Roger Stone's head of social media. So, um, and we know that because I was on the call <laughs> late 2019 is when they when that line of when at least that line of communication opened up. So. Over the course of 2020, I suspect that there was more there was more dialogue happening there. Um, prior to that, I feel like it was kind of one foot in, one foot out, and jury's mm-hmm. still out on exactly what you know the level of involvement was between, say, the the Flins and the Watkinses or any of these overlapping networks behind the scenes. Um, and did they have you know did they just have somebody who was working for them who was reporting back to them saying like oh yeah I'm in a Discord chat with you know Ron and <laughs> or or whoever I think his Q is and just kind of you know you know keep keeping up on it. Um, did you ever just take a step back and be like I can't believe that some QTuber can be planted this story and then Trump is just like literally retweeting it and then validating it in the press conference being like yeah like or or the town hall where he was just like I just put it out there it's just like. It's absolutely surreal that this happened. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> the whole thing was surreal. Yeah, I mean, it was it was just my jaw dropping and dropping and dropping until it went through the floor. I mean, it, yeah, you, just moment after moment, you would you, something would happen, and 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 uh, and you you would imagine things couldn't get any weirder, and then they would get weirder. <laughs> I mean, the the Osama bin Laden thing being uh, being shared by Trump was. Having been there to watch the moment that, that that agenda was kind of planted as a seed and then watching them spread that seed and kind of chronicling the the arc of how they um, how some of these ex mill ops like work was one of the more mind blowing things to me. And I, I think that actually gets lost um, lost 
in the series a bit to uh, um, to the to the bigger story around um, you know kind of Ron posting or Ron like being the the most likely suspect for Q, right? So, wow, Colin. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that kept coming up for me uh, watching you hanging out with Jim and Ron. Uh, was just this idea of how sophisticated uh, U.S. government surveillance has become. You know, NSA's technology is very sophisticated these days. So how do you think Ron and Jim Watkins got away with doing all this stuff and being in control of Q uh, without the federal government interfering with them seemingly in any way? And then even at one point, actually, they, or at least Ron, became part of Trump's Stop the Steal campaign. I mean, that... That in and of itself to me is very strange because if I really zoom out from it, it seems like even someone like Anwar al-Awlaki was radicalizing less people and he was drone bombed um, apparently for doing that, not even operationally being involved in terrorism or I mean that US government said he was, but they never provided evidence for it. Like it seems like Jim and Ron Watkins ultimately were radicalizing way more people in the United States than any anybody like Anwar al-Awlaki was so it's i find that very perplexing and i'm just wondering what's your take on that idea that the u.s government might have been surveilling them and not intervening or you know and then later aspects of it were even embracing them yeah i mean i have to imagine that uh at least one of the three-letter agencies knew who was pulling the strings here and that they were monitoring it it's hard it's hard to believe that they weren't or wouldn't know that right um it's a good question, uh, but but again, what? Uh, may, maybe they were told to leave them alone. Maybe they didn't commit any illegal acts. Maybe, um, maybe there were people. Maybe there there were mixed feelings about it. I I I, I mean I couldn't I couldn't tell you what the the motives might be for letting something like like this um, <laughs> continue, but. But again, it was at, at the time it was a campaign that was in support of the powers that be, and it was largely actually in support of a lot of um, of the military itself and of Trump, and and there were um, you know a lot of people within these agencies I suppose that were probably supportive of it as well. So it's it's. Uh, it's a bit of a grab bag. I, 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 I'd love to know what the rationale might be, exactly what the intelligence was on on QAnon, and we may we may know soon. I mean, the FBI is planning to release some kind of a report in relationship to Q um, in the coming weeks. But I think a lot of times what happens is you see these changes in administration and the policies shift. So what they may have been told to do for the last four years is different what they're being told to do now. And if they knew all of these things and they didn't act on them, how might the public react to something like that? So just what's the, what's the sort of calculus of self-preservation for those agencies at this point? So I don't know, man. <laughs> I, would, I would love to know uh, what was happening behind the scenes, but also like what besides, you know, I, I think this is always a challenge, like what, how would you prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, who was posting his cue at any point in time, um, would would doing something like that have actually stopped it or would have emboldened it? Um, 
is something like Q kind of like the Dread Pirate Roberts and could someone else have picked it up? And did they probably do the calculus of saying like without Q would this continue? And imagine if they did do something like that, might it have just created a martyr? So I, I don't know that um, – who I'm sure that they ran all kinds of scenarios if they knew who was behind the operation, if they knew who was behind Q. And for whatever reason, they decided to do nothing about it. It's fascinating to well, ponder. Well, interestingly enough, it seemed like they didn't do anything about the actual storm when it did come because <laughs> we know just several levels of the government obviously were privy to the fact that this was going to happen. It almost seemed like there was a letting it happen on purpose aspect, not just to the entire Q operation, but the ultimate uh, culmination of events, which was the storming of the Capitol. But I mean, you've you've touched upon so many important things, and I want to go back really quickly to what something that you said earlier about the algorithms, and also your intent to really depict people as they are, and really get out of this black and white mode of thinking when we look at censorship online today and the fact that our reality is essentially curated by these big tech giants and the humanization that you provide for everyone in the documentary. I mean, you know, because a lot of media that we ingest is telling us that 8chan and 4chan are just springboards for Nazis and that's all they exist for and that it's a hub for the ideology that arises like in mass shooters and of course they need to be purged and then QAnon needs to be purged and and then essentially it's just MAGA people who need to be expelled from our and sanitized from our view and and it just is a really dangerous slippery slope like you said but after watching the six-part series I empathize with everyone including Jim and Ron to a certain extent and I think adding that human element is so important to get into that gray area where we can understand who these people are, what their intent was, and also who QAnon believers are. I mean, LA, where I live, is a huge hub of QAnon belief. There was just a giant rally yesterday. I know several friends who have acquaintances, family members who got into this belief system who were liberal, who are progressive, who are just into new age movement, questioning things like uh, food or vaccines. And it really did capture so many more people. You can't just write these people off as MAGA. You can't just write these people off as Nazis. It's such a dangerous way that we're approaching this, societally speaking. So I guess it's a big, broad, open-ended thing, but I guess more distinctly, like, just talk about the internet solution that's being posed in the form of censorship, why you think that that's not the solution here. Yeah, I... Man... I mean, everything that you just brought up is – the more you censor and suppress things, the more those things tend to grow and the more hostile those people who are censored tend to be. I mean, if, if imagine if you were wiped from Twitter, uh, if, if you were told you couldn't have a YouTube account, if, you, if people were calling you something that you don't believe you are, would that make you more hostile and would it, would it make you less or more likely to double down on your pre-existing beliefs? Um, so, I mean, there's there's so many reasons why it's a mistake to go after the go after the speech itself or ideas that we consider to be wrongheaded, or to assume that we that that it's possible to select the truth while while um, 
while weeding out things which are factually incorrect. There's all kinds of, we're constantly evolving and learning and changing our minds about things. I mean, science is constantly evolving too. Like what if we just said like all the science we know now is correct and any new science that, that emerges um, that, that uh, refutes the current uh, ideas uh, should also be rejected. Um, I just, I just think that, yeah, we've, you can't, you can't uh, just silo a, almost half the population, um, <laughs> you know, without without there being repercussions. And right now, and it's that's not even like the the reason to worry about it. Like the, it, it just as a, just a fundamental right, like we're allowed to believe in crazy shit and we're allowed to talk about crazy shit. I mean, religions are full of crazy shit, right? Like people right. people believe in all kinds of nonsense, like. I don't know, man, Mitt Romney's Mormon and he probably thinks he's getting his own planet when he dies. I mean, perfectly, you know, people who hold, oh, you know, their, their, these, these positions in government and, and powerful positions and people who are perfectly reasonable, um, who can like, or like reasonable high functioning individuals can have wild beliefs and they're allowed to. Um, and yeah, I think that, part of what's happened here is we have just become so polarized that we've stopped seeing each other as human, <laughs> you know, um, like, and stopped talking to, to, to people who think really, really differently than us. And I think part of why people think so differently than each other right now is because of the algorithms. Um, it's because we've all been manipulated behind the scenes and driven into these echo chambers. And now we are um, experiencing the uh, the cost of having our privacy eroded um, with you know these psychometric profiles created on each of us, uh, we're feeling the cost of that manipulation. And while for some Twitter might feel like a better place right now because uh, there's you know all, all so many of these accounts have been purged that uh, they that have views that they may consider to be. Uh, illogical or dangerous or harmful in some way, shape, or form, those individuals haven't gone away, as you pointed out. They're just going to go somewhere else. And whether you suppress it um, or you ignore it, um, you know, those individuals will regroup and they might come back stronger. So I think instead we have to figure out, well, how are we going to move forward as a society and kind of restore rights online um, and, and maybe we need to look at the algorithms themselves. Maybe we need to look at restoring rights online rather than taking them away. Um, maybe we need to put seatbelts on algorithms. I mean, maybe we need to figure out better moderation tactics. <laughs> but, but that's moderation. It's not the same thing as censorship. You know, if I moderate my Twitter feed and I decide, okay, I'm going to say this certain thing. These are the kinds of individuals that I want. It's just curation, Right. You know, and that's that's more the answer. It's the algorithms that 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 attract people to um, crazier content or more sensational content because that's what gets rewarded is the most sensational thing, the most hateful thing. Um, it, it's what draws eyeballs, and that, these algorithms really are digital sociopaths. And I don't. I think we need to question whether or not these algorithms should be considered protected speech and and look at yeah the underlying technology of these platforms and question that rather than questioning the speech itself um, because almost always I think 
there's tons of historical precedent. The second that you try to enact laws to um, silence hate speech or undesirable speech, it ends up having it ends up harming the very people that those laws were intended to protect. Um, and those tools end up getting used by those in powerful positions who control the flows of information in order to uh, push whatever narratives that they want. Um, and uh, it, it, I don't know. All rights come with a cost, and I think that right now we're just we're we're being told oh, all this 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 terrible stuff that's happening in society is a is a byproduct of the speech, as opposed to what it really is, which is a, a byproduct of this sort of new experiment of, of algorithms and big tech controlling the narrative. I guess you could argue that Q kind of went out with a whimper because it didn't really take advantage of the power that it had established, but it also simultaneously sort of culminated with the January 6th event at the Capitol. And one really interesting thing about your documentary is that you're there on the ground when all this is happening. You're with Jim Watkins. He's being accused of, you know, running child pornography websites in the middle of all this. And then there's a moment that you guys share together that really stood out to me. And I think a lot of people's, their main moment that they took away from the documentary was sort of the the you and Ron conversation at the end where you guys sort of share a laugh and he smiles where it seems like he slipped up and sort of got r- right up to the edge of admitting he was Q. But there was something else I feel like nobody else talked about that I maybe I misinterpreted. So was I hearing right? Was Jim also kind of confessing sort of in a way that this that what was culminating with this capital building event was like their big first foray into politics. Like you sort of like ask him in a, in this not direct way. I don't know. Was I reading that right? That he's kind of also admitting possibly to that they did this or that he wants to take credit for this. Yeah. I think you can see the pride in his eyes that day and that mm-hmm. what everything leading to that moment it does seem like it cost him a fair amount. Um, and there's something about the echo of that moment where he is now leading or in his, you know, he, he feels a, a certain amount of pride in having made the sixth possible uh, through his website and whatever the costs were associated with keeping that website alive and the echo of of that or sort of the inverse of when he was called to appear in front of the Capitol. Right. So, you know, he, he was brought in by the powers that be and, and, and they question him for any number of hours on, on his platform. And here he was back at the Capitol again, but this time, um, sort of facilitating to some extent uh, what what happened that day. Now, I don't think that he's responsible for the sixth. <laughs> I don't want to say that. Um, and yeah. I, and, and I don't think that Q is solely responsible either, but I do not, I do not think that the sixth would have happened without Q. You know, it was a confluence mm-hmm. of factors and, and everywhere you went that day, you would hear Q slogans chanted um, you would hear the uh, "We're not going to take it anymore," you know, which is the last song of the Q drop played <laughs> over and over again. 
you know, slogans and chants and paraphernalia. I mean, it was everywhere that day. And I'm sure that there were a number of people who had just sort of adopted the 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 Q moniker or just the letter as a symbol for um, uh, uh, almost MAGA at that point. Um, yeah. You know, it had grown so much in scope and scale that a lot of the sort of original players um, weren't in control of the narrative anymore either. And... So you could see it really kind of spiraling at that point. And I mean, Trump himself, I think, was was um, almost indistinguishable from Q at that point. So it really had all kind of merged. And, and, I, and I see the sixth as a and, – and I think Jim – and that's what I was asking Jim. Like, was this sort of a manifestation of Q? Is this, is this the moment that, that people tried to make Q become real? Um, and, and that's what I think – you really see is the the chart of the whole series, which is people pretending something until it becomes real, until the the story that they were telling themselves actually drew in the very pl- power players that it that that weren't involved in the beginning, uh, but they became involved over time, and that by the end, the Q narrative became indistinguishable to some extent from reality. Um, but as Ron would say, uh, they. You know, they they tried to cross the proverbial Rubicon and failed. I guess the last thing I will ask you, Colin, is what have you heard from Ron and Jim uh, since the, the releasing of all six parts of the documentary? I know they tried to bootleg it on one of their <laughs> some, one of their wacky websites that they have. Work, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what what have you heard from them? And I know you've probably been keeping tabs on them since then. Like they've probably done little appearances here and there, that weird Zoom stream thing that they do that I don't I don't quite get their whole internet footprint public facing personas on the internet are very strange. But yeah, what what was their uh what was their takeaway from the documentary and, and what did they talk to you about since I'm assuming you've talked to them as well. So what what have you spoken to them about since it came out? <laughs> so <clears throat> let me think. Uh, I mean, I, I you know Ron still sends me messages occasionally. Yesterday he sent me a message uh, with an image of James O'Keefe, the Project Veritas <laughs> guy, holding a hammer in front of like a bunch of TVs and CNN painted on the wall. He's like, see, James O'Keefe has a hammer too. Um, uh, apparent reference to, to his, you know, mochi hammer on the, on the, when he was climbing the, the, the mountain. Okay. Um, but, uh, I think the, the most telling quote <clears throat> that he sent me, let me see if I can find it. I mean, he, you know, he mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of journalists kind of digging into his past now. Uh, you know, people from, people from his extended circle, high school classmates. Okay, here's what he said. He said, Something I learned long ago is that internet personalities are just actors on a stage. Making things larger than life makes for a better story and ultimately a more entertaining existence. Getting away from the narrative that, quote, Ron is Q will be impossible, so I may as well embrace it, even though it's not the truth. 
Then he just says, just hope the real Q doesn't fuck me over <laughs> by posting with his trip code and saying something illegal. So it's, you know, it's kind of the <laughs> the walk, come as close to the line as possible and then walk it back. So sort of cl- classic Ron. Um, you know, and they're... Um, Amazing. Ron, Jim actually sent me a nice letter saying, you know, that he didn't, that he, he was embarrassed by some things in it, but uh, but that ultimately he felt <laughs> like it was a fair representation. So that's... That's and, and and you know, I've received some criticism for for treating everyone fairly <laughs> for quote unquote humanizing <laughs> subjects, but they're humans, you know? Right. And and humans do shitty things and you don't have to like the things that those humans do, but if they're having, you know, huge influence on culture and politics, we should know what makes them tick and and try to understand the the a full picture of of those of those minds, um, whether, whether or not it's to prevent something like you from happening again, or at least to understand the nature of how the magic trick works and, and the kinds of people who are behind it. Um, and I think that demystifying it ultimately takes away some of its power. Absolutely. Absolutely fucking fascinating. Um, and you did a beautiful job, Colin, and, uh, I wish you luck on whatever future projects you have in store could you tease us maybe something that you're <laughs> that you're working on next or do you have you do you not honestly not know yet uh i have a i have like uh don't know if i'm gonna cut it yet or not i recorded this uh like true crime comedy eight-part podcast <laughs> uh before this cool. all went down it's like the lowest imaginable stakes but uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna get into it quite yet but uh i have that and i'm i'm toying with a couple of big other investigative pieces but i like i just need my, my brain to 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 thaw for a bit before i uh before i jump into it so. <laughs> thank you so much colin for your time for your investigation and for everything that you're doing to shed light on this and keep up the great work we're very honored that you came on to talk about us well uh well thank you and i mean you know we uh we go back to the terms and conditions days so <laughs> I, I uh i i appreciate you having uh supported my 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 work once upon a time and uh and and thanks for uh thanks for having me on thanks colin it was a pleasure thanks so much man all right guys thanks again for listening to media roots radio if you liked what you heard on this episode please consider donating or more per month or per creation. You can subscribe to our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash mediarootsradio to get access to our bonus episode that comes out once per month. We're doing a long history series right now as our bonus episodes called The Freemasonic History of the United States. We're already up to episode seven. Thanks again, everybody. Take care.